Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us now what you created the world to be, how you have accomplished redemption, who we are as the church, that we might know you. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word that we might know you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, two weeks ago, we started into Exodus 25 through 31, and it was my plan to try to get through that whole section of text, and we did not achieve that goal. So we're going to pick up today in Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. And I just want to briefly... Um, uh, make some comments here about why this passage is here. Um, why, why do we have in Exodus 25 through 32 instructions for the building of Israel's tabernacle? Uh, before I offer uh, my thoughts on that, let me just briefly summarize what we see so far in the book of Exodus. Uh, the first two chapters really introduce us to Moses and to the plight of the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. And then Chapters 3 through 19, it's almost from Sinai to Sinai. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is shepherding the flock of his father, and he comes to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and God appears to him in the burning bush, and he tells him that he's to bring Israel out of Egypt, and the sign that he will achieve that, that purpose is that they will worship God on this mountain, and then follow you know, going down into Egypt and announcing to Pharaoh that he's to let the people go and then follow the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea crossing. And then they get out into the wilderness and they have nothing to eat. And the Lord provides manna from heaven and quail and water from the rock. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai. And so you go from Sinai to Sinai in Exodus 3 through 19. And then the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai and speaks the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then Moses goes up onto the mountain and, and stays there for 40 days. And we're still in that period, uh, in, in this 40-day period where Moses is receiving instruction. Um, and, and, and Moses gets the instruction. He comes down off the mountain. He reads the book of the covenant to the people. And all that material is in Exodus 21 through 24. And then he goes back up on the mountain. And we, we read in Exodus chapter 24... Uh, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone. And then at the end of this passage, in, in, at the end of chapter 31, in 31, 18, he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Right after that in Exodus 24, in Exodus 24, 16, we read, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This glory cloud is going to be significant for what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 30. And it's also significant that the Lord begins to speak to Moses on the seventh day. There's a pattern that matches the week of creation, 
followed by the Sabbath rest, and now there's this week of waiting, and then the Lord begins to speak. And this whole passage, again, is going to conclude in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, with instructions about the Sabbath. So the, the two tablets and the Sabbath really bracket this whole section of Exodus 25 through 31. And I suggested two weeks ago that there are these seven, seven places where the Lord said to Moses which correspond to the seven let there be statements in Genesis 1. And then there are also these loose correspondences, I think, between the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the week of creation. And, and that's going to culminate not only in the priests that we started uh, reading about who would correspond to the making of the man and the woman on day six, but also to... Bezalel and Aholiab, these, these figures that we're going to read about in Exodus 31, who are, who are uh, filled with wisdom for the making of these things that they've re received instructions for. And then this creation week, if you will, of instructions for the tabernacle uh, is, is completed with those instructions for the Sabbath in Exodus 31. And that brings me back to my question that I started with. Why do we have instructions for the building of the tabernacle in the Bible. I'll be honest with you, when I, was, when I first read through the Bible as a junior in high school, I thought to myself, didn't the Lord have more important stuff to say to us than this? I mean, you know, I, I'd read some good literature that was fun to read, that piqued my, my intellectual curiosity with its philosophical reasonings, and then I come to these instructions for the building of the tabernacle, and I don't know my way around, and I don't understand my, their significance. And I'm like, why is God wasting his time in the Bible, forgive me for saying that even here today, by putting this in the scriptures? But maybe you felt that way. Well, I want to suggest to you four reasons that the Lord puts these instructions for the building of the tabernacle into the scriptures. Reason number one, to understand creation. I, I, I think that Moses, as I said two weeks ago, I think that Moses intended his audience to see this correspondence between the making of the world in Genesis 1 and 2 and the building of the tabernacle. So as we contemplate the tabernacle, we're really contemplating the way God created the world. So all this focus on holiness, on the presence of God, on the worship and service of God. This is all helping us to have insight into how we should think about the world that we live in. Number two, second reason I think that these instructions are here, to understand redemption. We're going to see as we move through this passage more about the sacrifices that cover the sins of the people of Israel and that deliver them from their their sinful and mortal state. We saw some of this already. You, you may remember that two weeks ago, when we were looking at the priests, there were these similarities between the way that the altar was to be anointed on the horn of the altar with blood. Blood was to be uh, placed on the horn of the altar, sprinkled on the sides of the altar, and then poured out at the base of the altar. And there's a there's a correspondence between that and the way that the high priest is to have blood put on his ear and then on the thumb of his right hand and then on the thumb of uh, the big toe of his right foot. And, and it's almost like the, the priest is a replica of the tabernacle 
almost like he's a, a walking altar. And this is setting us up for the, the way that Jesus would come along and say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And, and these concepts, the, the manipulation of the blood in these ways, it, it, it's communicating uh, ideas that, that are later going to be exposited in the, in the book of Exodus, uh, Leviticus when the Lord says, the life of the body is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. And so the, their life is, is slain because of their sin through the sacrifice, and then the altar is anointed, and the priest is anointed, and there are ways in which it's as though the, the guilt of the people is being transferred symbolically to the Lord himself, the one who dwells in that temple. And then on the Day of Atonement, that will be dealt with when the temple is cleansed. So these instructions for the tabernacle are here so that we can understand creation, so that we can understand redemption, third, so that we can understand the church. Because Paul is going, going to say things like, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then there's all this church building language in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 4, he's, he's building up the body, the Lord Jesus is, through the gifts that he gives to the church. And then our call to worship today, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. So we have to understand this stuff to understand the church. And then finally, and I think most importantly, the instructions for the tabernacle are in the Bible so that we can know God. So that we can know him as the holy God who created the world as a cosmic temple that he meant to inhabit with his people, to be known and served and worshipped by them, to enjoy fellowship and communion and life with them. And, and this is what is being recaptured through Israel's tabernacle. Um, one, one, one more comment on that. And, and this goes with this idea that that this is not permanent. Everything that we're reading here in, in these instructions for the tabernacle, you know, I, I last a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out these statements about the forever statute, like, for instance, Exodus 29, 9. You shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. And there are a number of statements like this, a statute forever. And I, I, I've argued, I, I suggested that uh, this is stated this way, even though Moses elsewhere in the Pentateuch says, essentially, this covenant is going to be broken. And it is not going to be the lasting arrangement between God and his people. That's a very important idea for us to lay hold of, not least because the New Testament clearly says of, of the Lord Jesus, when there's a change in the priesthood, talking about how Jesus is now our great high priest, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, there's a change in the law as well. So the, the high priesthood is changed from the order of Aaron to the Lord Jesus, and the law has been changed so that this, this, these arrangements are not how we relate to God. For instance, I would urge you not to refer to this room as though it is the place where God uniquely dwells. That is not what this room is. I know it's sometimes called the sanctuary, that word refers to the place where God dwells. You're the sanctuary. Believers are the sanctuary. God does not uniquely indwell this, temp this, this building. 
This is not his house, you're his house. This is not his temple, you're his temple. That's why I try to refer to this room as the worship hall, or maybe the auditorium, or the meeting space. This, this is not the temple, this is not the sanctuary, this is not the holy place. You're the holy place. God dwells in you. And, and then there are many other things, and, and some of them we'll get into uh, the changes that have, have come as we get into the New Testament. Let me, let me read you a statement um, from this book by Roy Gain entitled Cult and Character. It's on uh, the, the offerings and the, um, the sacrifices mainly pertaining to the book of Leviticus, but I think this really captures what's going on in the tabernacle and, and it, later in the temple and through the whole sacrificial system, some of which we're reading about here. Roy Gain writes, Behind the veil of the ancient Israelite cultic system, he's just referring to the whole system that's put in place in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. Behind the veil of the ancient Israelite cultic system is Yahweh's role as Israel's king and judge. The sanctuary where he is enthroned stands for his character, reputation, and authority. Just as a human king's throne is affected by the condition of his subjects, so Yahweh's sanctuary receives the impact of human imperfection among the surrounding Israelites. Their mortality is incompatible with his holiness. Their sins are incompatible with his righteousness. For Yahweh to, be, to continue dwelling among his faulty people, his reputation must be cleared periodically so that it will not become too serious, seriously compromised. And that, that's what's happening through the sacrifices and through the Day of Atonement in particular. Now with those words in mind, let me invite you to look with me at Exodus chapter 29, verse 42. And this is talking about the, the offerings that the priests are to make there at the tabernacle. Exodus 29, verse 42 reads, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And I just want to pause here and say that back in Exodus 27, the instructions for the bronze altar were given. That bronze altar is at the doors of the tabernacle. The tabernacle faces to the east. And at the, at the doors outside the tent are the bronze altar, and there's going to be this regular burnt offering made there. And then the Lord says at the end of verse 42, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. And I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I can't help but think of Exodus 3.8. It's as though the Lord is saying, I'm going to come walk among you in the cool of the day. So, so this tabernacle system, is, it's almost like it's recreating an opportunity for Israel, who is, who is God's son. Remember Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. The nation Israel is God's son, like Adam was, in a sense, God's son. Israel is now, they have the opportunity to walk with God in a, a recaptured or recreated Eden. That, that's what I think this creation imagery and these creation overtones are meant to communicate. God is making a temporary way for his people to walk with him 
the way that Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Now, these parallels between Adam and Israel and the tabernacle and Eden are going to have another parallel because at the end of Exodus 31, when we read about this Sabbath that they're to keep, which corresponds to the Sabbath in Exodus 2, 1 through 4, you know what's going to happen in Exodus 32, right? It's almost like Genesis 3, 6 all over again. She saw that the tree was good for food, and she took and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate also. And, and, and Moses is going to come down from the mountain and find the people having made the golden calf, and the covenant is broken. And the new Adam has transgressed in the new Eden in the same way that the first Adam transgressed in the original creation. So let's continue here in, in Exodus chapter 29. Verse 43, the Lord says, there at the tabernacle, he says, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. This is why I read that statement about how the king's character, who God is, it's it's communicated through the tabernacle system. His holiness, the requirement that you be purified, that your sins be purged, that they be covered by the blood of the sacrifice, that, that his wrath be propitiated. All of these things are communicated through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, and thereby the people are they're set apart from the world, and they're devoted to the worship of the Lord. That's what I think it means when it says, it shall be sanctified by my glory, because God has come among them. They are set apart to him. Then he says in verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting. And you, you remember that in this, in this section of, of chapters, we start out with this place being referred to as the tabernacle, which is a word that means something like tent. And, and we, we get tabernacle from 25 through uh, 2719. And then in 2720, it starts being referred to as the tent of meeting, perhaps to communicate that this is the place where God and man will meet and commune together. I will consecrate, 2944, the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. That's an astonishing statement. The holy God is saying he's going to dwell among the people. The only thing that makes that possible and his holiness not break out against them and kill them is the sacrificial system. It's the, the, the rites of, of purification and cleansing and consecration that are, that, are, that are being instituted here make it possible for God to dwell among them. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Maybe that reminds you of Exodus chapter 6 in verse 7 when the Lord declares to Moses... He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And, and that formula, you will be my people, I will be your God, is going to echo across the Old Testament. It really has already started. We, we first encountered something like it all the way back in Genesis 17. But this is what the Lord is saying to his people. You will be my people, I will be your God. And then he goes on, verse 46 of Exodus 29, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God. And this is why I had J.O. read all those. The, the Egyptians will know, 
and Israel will know that I am the Lord. All those statements. Again and again, the Lord announced, this is why I'm doing the exodus, for the world to know who I am. And so the purpose that God was after at the exodus is the same purpose that he's after through the tabernacle. That is, for his people to know who he is, for them to know his character, his authority, and his reputation. They shall know, Exodus 29, 46, that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. And you remember, when he was announcing to Pharaoh, Moses would, would say over and over, thus says Yahweh, let my people go, what? That they may serve me. And that's what's being accomplished through this whole tabernacle system. They are, they are being set apart to and devoted to the service and the knowledge of God and the enjoyment of his presence in his good world. And this is why two weeks ago I said, this is what the world is. This is what the, what, what's being communicated through the tabernacle is really what the world was made for. The world was not, a, not made as a place for us to be tempted to sin. The world was not made as a place for us to indulge our various vices and, and, and weaknesses. The world was made as a place for us to know and enjoy God. That's what the world is for. And, and then I also said, this is who we are. Not that we're ancient Israel. We're not a nation. We're not an ancient Near Eastern people group. No, we are the people of God. We're, we're people who were made to know and enjoy and walk with him. Okay, so there's the goal and the purpose of the tabernacle system. And then we, we read about this altar of incense in chapter 30. And I'm not going to read every statement here, I, but I, just a, a few selected statements. So look at chapter 30, verse 1. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. And a cubit its breadth, it shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So its construction is really similar to the bronze altar that sits at the doors of the tabernacle. But that altar is going to receive the burnt offerings and the, the, the sacrificial offerings. And, and that one, you, you may remember from 27.1, is five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high. So this is a smaller one, one cubit wide, one cubit long, and what did it say, two cubits high. But this one also has horns. That one was covered with bronze. This one is in the holy place, and so it's covered with gold. So you have this smaller altar inside the holy place, and this one is for, for burning incense. Look at verse 7. Well, the, notice the end of verse 6. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat, that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And so it seems that when you go into the holy place, as, as you move westward, which would take you in the opposite direction that Adam and Eve uh, went when they exited Eden, right? They, they exit Eden to the east. Well, now the, only, the, only the priest is allowed to enter the holy, holy place, and he's, he's moving west. It's almost like he's moving back into Eden, and only the high priest is allowed to go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and only on the Day of Atonement. But as he goes in, when he gets to the veil, the priest, that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies, that's where the incense altar was. 
And so the, the incense altar seems to be associated with that veil. And, and sometimes the, word, the way this is worded, it almost makes it sound like the incense altar is inside the veil, but it's not. It's in the holy place outside the veil. And then look at the end of verse 6. Where I will meet with you. So again, this is all about God coming among and meeting with his people. Verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. So Aaron is to, to have this incense prepared that he comes in and he puts on this smaller altar and then he, he lights it on fire and this is going to create a cloud of incense. And that cloud, I think, is meant to recall what we saw in Exodus 24, 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And also Exodus 40, when they, they, they get the tabernacle built and what happens? Well, the cloud of God's presence comes down and settles upon the tabernacle. And then you remember what Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And, th and then he speaks of how the, the, the smoke filled the temple. So this incense altar is creating this, this cloud of smoke that does two things that are somewhat paradoxical. On the one hand, it reveals the presence of God. The cloud is meant to recall the cloud into which Moses entered, the cloud that's going to come down on the tabernacle. So this is where God is. But it also conceals the presence of God. It makes it so that the, the priest, is, if he wanted to look clearly, he, could, he can't see clearly because of the cloud. So the cloud reveals and conceals the very presence of God. And then we keep reading here. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, Exodus 30, verse 7. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And verses 9 and 10 are, are sober anticipations of what we know is going to happen in Leviticus 10. Verse 9, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu are going to decide that they will author, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they're going to be struck dead. Here, they're warned, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. And then verse 10, it's interesting, Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 16, which speaks of the Day of Atonement, they both mention the death of Nadab and Abihu. So Leviticus 16 is really tied to Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, died before the Lord. And so look at verse 10 of Exodus 30. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. That's referring to the Day of Atonement. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations, which, again, it sounds like forever, but I think it just means for as long as this covenant is in place between God and Israel, it is most holy to the Lord. So that atonement offering is going to refer to the shedding of blood. And in that shedding of the blood of a sacrificial animal, the, the worshiper will have identified with the animal, and then the animal will have been slain, and this is doing a number of things. It's propitiating God's just displeasure towards sinners. That's one thing it's doing. It's also covering. I mean, one of, one of the words used to, to, that's translated atonement simply means 
cover. And scholars discuss what kind of covering is happening. And it seems that the kind of covering that's happening is the breach that's been created in the covenantal relationship. That, that breach, it's like the blood is, is covering the breach and making it so that the relationship is whole again. So there's, there's propitiation of God's wrath, there's covering of the breach, and then we read of something else that immediate fo- immediately follows here in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, this is another aspect of the way that the relationship is being healed because there's a debt that has to be paid, a ransom. That's the the same word that's sometimes translated atonement. It's like an atonement price or, or a cover price. If you look at verse 14... It says, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. I think what's being communicated here is rich people are not worth more in the eyes of God, and poor people are not worth less in the eyes of God. Same price for everybody. Everybody's got the same debt. Whatever your socioeconomic status, you owe the same atonement price to God. Verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So you've got the propitiation of God's wrath. You've got the covering that, that, that reestablishes the relationship and, and, and fills in the breach. And now you've got the payment of the debt. And then we have some, another aspect of the salvation, the redemption that God is doing for his people, I think, in verse 17 and following. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze which incidentally, you know, I, I mentioned two weeks ago that often the, the, the quality of the metals or, or the implements will signify where you are and, and how holy things are so that everything in the, in the tabernacle is gold. The bronze altar is bronze outside, and then there are silver and other things. Well, here we've, we've, ju- we've started with the incense altar, which is gold, and then we move to the shekel, the, the, the payment, which is silver, And now we're at bronze with this basin. And this basin here in verse 17 is for washing. It says, you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. I think the point here is, as, as the priests enter into the presence of God, they have to be clean, which is another aspect of redemption, isn't it? It's not just the propitiation of God's wrath. It's not just the, the filling in of the breach in the relationship. It's not just the payment of the debt. It's also cleansing so that you're pure as you enter into the presence of God. Verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. That's stated twice. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. 
Well, once again, we're not going to finish this passage today. I'm not going to, to um, go, go over long. I, I just want to make a final comment about the anointing oil here. And I'm, I'm not going to read through this whole section. I just want to draw your attention in verses 22 and following to words like finest spices in verse 23. Liquid myrrh. And then at the end of verse 24, oil. Verse 25, anointing oil. And then... And, and so what's to be anointed here, they're to take these finest spices and the oil and they're to create this anointing oil that is to be holy for the use of the tabernacle. Only the tabernacle is to be anointed with this oil. And then only Aaron and his sons, the priests, are to be anointed. Look at verse 29. Uh, this is speaking of the implements used in worship. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And then in verse 32, it shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. And then that's uh, restated with some other details in verses 34 through 38. What is this anointing oil about? Well, I could be wrong about this, but I think we get insight, actually, in Song of Songs. In Song of Songs chapter 4, it is as though the, the king, as he enters into the, the, co the marital covenantal relationship with his beloved, in Song of Songs 4, 12 and following, he says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. And it's, it's as though he's speaking of his wife like she's the Garden of Eden. And then he, he uses all these terms that we've just read about, the finest spices, the myrrh, the, the oil. And, and it's as though he's describing the Garden of Eden. Song of Songs 4, I'll just read uh, verse 13. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. And, and, and so it's as though he's, de he's describing the consummation of the covenant with his wife as though man and woman are once again naked and unashamed in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, and you have all of these wonderful spices and, and fragrant trees and flowing oils. So back to the anointing oil, what's that about? I think it's about Eden. I think that the, the tabernacle was to be anointed this way because it was supposed to smell like Eden. The priest was to be anointed this way because he was like Adam in the garden. So God's holy place is a place of, of fragrance, a place of beauty and glory, a place of purity and holiness, a place where the relationship is whole, unbroken. That's what is being communicated through these instructions for the 